I could say as I look out uh, to you this morning, welcome to church. There you go. Welcome to church. That's something that we say. I don't have a problem saying that. But better yet and more accurate and, and more biblical, I ought to say, welcome church. And as I look out and say, welcome church, I'm not looking at the blocks or the windows or the pews. I'm looking at the faces of the baptized believers. And you know this to be true. You, those of you who are Christians who have been saved by God, you are the church. I am looking at the church as I gaze out on this crowd this morning. If you've been saved, if you have believed in the power of Almighty God to rescue you from your sins, if you've been baptized in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, then you have been added to the Lord's church by the Lord Himself. The church, what we are a part of, what we are members of, the church that Jesus established on the foundation of Peter's faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the church that was inaugurated by the marvelous power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and the courageous preaching of the apostles in Acts 2. That church, you're a part of that if you are a saved, baptized believer. This church that I'm speaking about has endured for 2,000 years and it will exist forevermore. And that's you. You are part of that. You are a unit, a member of that church. So welcome, not to church. Welcome, church. We're thankful that as the church, we can gather together this morning. Now, anytime we're dealing with an idea that is as big and profound as, and as difficult as this idea church can be, it's helpful to have an image, some, some type of metaphor to help us wrap our brains around this idea. And lucky for us, the New Testament has provided for us a collection of images to help us better understand the nature of the Lord's church. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. The Bible calls the church a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible refers to the church as a lampstand. The Bible tells us that the church is the family of God. And we could go on and on. But one of the Bible's favorite images for the church is a body. A body. This is the image that Paul uses quite extensively in 1 Corinthians 12. He spills a lot of ink, spends most of the chapter comparing the church to the body. And also in our text this morning, another text of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 4, 11-16, Paul compares the church to the human body. So he says the church is a living organism in which the various members are the building blocks, the organs, the limbs. They are what constitutes the church, the body. And so that might lead us to ask this basic question. Why a body, Paul? Why compare the church to a body, Holy Spirit? Why do we see this image in the New Testament? Well, there's several reasons, I'm sure, but here's a big one. By its very nature, a body grows. 
a body grows. This is basic stuff. This is basic anatomy. This is not new to you. I think about my children, how amazing it has been to watch them grow. And you don't have to have kids to recognize how amazing and incredible it is to see a person go from infancy to adulthood and grow. We might attach the word miracle to that. I mean, it's not something that's supernatural. It happens all the time. But what an amazing creation of God we are and how God has designed us to go through these various developmental stages on our way to adulthood. We witness our children. They begin as helpless, dependent infants, requiring us to serve them in every way. And then they learn to see, and they learn to smile, and they learn to respond to stimuli. They roll over, and then they crawl, and then they walk, and then there's no stopping them. They start to make coos and and noises, and then they begin forming words, and those words turn into sentences. And then they learn how to read and write, and their stature grows, and they develop various skills. It's incredible. Bodies grow. And if a body is not growing between infancy and adulthood, you don't have to call a medical professional in. You know there's a serious problem. If growth is stunted, if a child is not developing in in appropriate ways, if a child is not growing, you know that something is wrong because bodies grow. Likewise, the church is a body, right? The body. That's what Scripture says. That's what Paul says in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. If a church is not growing and maturing and becoming more Christ-like, and I'm not just talking about more people coming through the doors and, and, being, and warming our pews and being with us on Sunday, though that is what we desire. We want more people to be here with us so that more people can hear the gospel, so that more people can be obedient to Christ. That's part of it, but that's not the whole picture here. I'm talking about a church becoming healthier, becoming more godly, more holy, more pure, more Christ-like growth. If a church is not growing, then something's wrong. And that church is sick. And there's there's disease among us that that needs to be identified and rooted out. Bodies grow. That is naturally what they do. Therefore, the church as a body ought to be always growing. Churches cease to grow when Christians cease to grow. Those of us who constitute the church, who are units, members of the church, if we, let, let's zoom in a little bit and think about ourselves as individual Christians. If we are not growing, then how can we expect our church to grow? Only growing Christians can make growing churches. And so each of us has to ask ourselves this question, am I making meaningful progress as a believer? Am I a more devoted Christian today than I was yesterday, this week than last week, this year than last year? Am I studying my Bible more? Am I coming to understand who Jesus and His Father and the Holy Spirit are more? Is my life more committed as a believer than it was? Am I growing? Am I making progress? I can't expect this body of believers to grow if I am not growing myself. 
churches stop growing when Christians stop growing. But let's circle back. We've got to take all this in together. We don't grow in a vacuum. We don't grow simply as individuals off to ourselves. We mature alongside and in communion with other Christians, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been talking about what is our motto, our tagline, this, these three phrases that have appeared under our logo for many years. We talked about looking up to God, reaching out with the message of the gospel. That was the past two weeks. And today we bring it full circle. We complete this mini-series about this motto with growing together. And both of those words are vitally important. They cannot be separated. Growing. We've been talking about the importance of this. We must grow as individual Christians, as the body, but we must do it together in communion, in fellowship with one another. We've got to grow and we've got to do it together. And here's a very important question we've got to answer. What are we growing toward? What is the goal? What is the purpose? What are we maturing into? And to answer this, let's go back to the text. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 13 to 15. And we've got some of these verses up on the screen. Paul says, you are working together. You are equipping one another. You are building up the body of Christ. Verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ, likeness, is the goal, is the purpose. That is what we are growing toward. And let's keep reading, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, And carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So we dare not talk about the church as the body if we miss this part of the image. Christ is our head. And the goal for each of us is to grow into Him who is the head, into Christ. To reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The head of the body. The one who ought to be animating us. The one who ought to be controlling our every move. Christ, our head. We are to be becoming more like Him. It's all about Christ. And in fact, these three phrases that we've been talking about, Christ is at the center of each of them. We look up to Christ. We reach out with the message of Christ. And we grow together into the likeness of Christ. Christ is at the center, or He ought to be at the center of everything we do. Now in the time that we've got left, I want to share with you some attributes of churches that grow together. And these are in no particular order. And you could probably think of many more to add on. But these are the ones that I want to share with you this morning based on my own study and my reflection that I think are important for us to remember. 
And here's the first one. Churches that grow together understand the strength of the bond of Christ. There's number one. Churches that grow together in maturity and fellowship, aiming to become more Christ-like, they understand how strong is the bond of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of ties that bind. And we talk about blood running thicker than water, but we could talk not just about family ties, but friendship and organizational ties and national ties, all sorts of things that link us together. But we as Christians must remember that the force that binds us, the force of the gospel, is the most powerful that there is. And we've got to live like it. We've got to live into that truth. The gospel brings people together who have no earthly reason to be connected. It's the beauty of it. It's always been the beauty of it. And the first century church, they had to figure this out and work this out, and it was hard for them. It was hard for the Jews to open up the doors to the outsiders because they had always been taught that they were special. And they were. But according to God's plan, now through Jesus Christ, the gates of the kingdom would be open wide to all who come to him and confess faith in him. And so the church became, the earliest churches were melting pots of people from all different cultures, and the only thing that bound them together was belief in Jesus Christ and his power to save. And so it is true today. We are members one of one another because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the strength of that bond should supersede all other bonds. It's the strongest that there is. So we've all been bound together from the smelly teenagers to the emerging adults to the young parents to the great uh, grandparents in the faith. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And let me just say, you guys are not smelly. I can, you, you all smell actually kind of nice this morning. Thank you. But we're all brought together as one through Jesus Christ. And let's think on more of a global scale. As believers in Christ, we have more in common with a young, single, destitute, baptized believer, a mother from Kenya, than we do a red-blooded American down the street who rejects Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. We've all been bound together. And when we understand this, it changes our level of responsibility and the care that we should have toward other believers. It, it ought to transform the way we look at each other and the responsibility we have for the well-being of one another. So if the church, if this church wants to grow together, we're, then we need to understand that the bond of Christ that ties us is stronger than any other bond. Now here's number two. Churches that grow together embrace warmth. Churches that grow together embrace warmth. They are warm in the way that they interact, not just with one another, but also with outsiders. Churches that want to grow together are going to be warm, inviting places. Now that doesn't, some of you when you hear that might think, well, to be that way, we've got to be accepting of 
things that we shouldn't based on God's word. You know, we've got to compromise the truth. And I would reject that. Jesus Christ, when he was on the earth, did not compromise one iota of truth. He spoke unflinchingly about all sorts of difficult topics, the most difficult subjects that there were. He addressed, I think about sexual ethics. He didn't shy away. He didn't mince words talking about fornication and lust and adultery. He didn't beat around the bush. He spoke truth. And yet, there was a warmth about it. Sinners, the, the outcasts from society, they were drawn to him. Children flocked to this man. Jesus spoke the truth, but he did it in love. He didn't shy away from preaching God's word as, as God in the flesh, but he was warm. And if Jesus can do it, then so can we. So can his body. Researchers at the Fuller Youth Institute, they studied more than 250 congregations who are exceptional in their ministry to youth and to young adults. And they interviewed more than 1,300 young churchgoers from 15 to 29. And when asked why these young people chose a particular congregation, the same words kept popping up. These are the words that they used. Welcoming, accepting, and again, that doesn't necessarily mean that the church approves of, of any type of behavior that anything goes. I think what that means is, are you going to love me no matter what? Are you going to hang with me? Maybe correct me when I go astray, but are you going to be there with me for the long haul? Are you going to welcome me and accept me? Some other words, belonging, authentic, hospitable, caring. All these words. And they began calling this collection of words the warmth cluster. And they decided that young people want warmth in a church. Many congregations want to make young people think that church is cool. And they do all sorts of things to reach young people by making the church hip and cool. But these researchers say that's a waste of time. It's not about being cool. It's about being warm. Warm is the new cool, they say. So how warm are we, I'm wondering? On a scale from icy cold to cool to room temperature to fireside warm, how warm is this congregation? How are we doing? President Roosevelt, during his presidency, there were, there were multiple accounts of people coming out of the Oval Office after meetings with the president and saying that he was so wonderful that he had risen out of his chair to greet them. But experts today on Roosevelt's life tell us that this would have been impossible. Why? Some of you know. Because the president had suffered from polio as a child and he had lost the ability to walk without aid. One historian said he never rose to greet anyone. He couldn't get out of a chair. So why did multiple people report that he rose to greet them when they had an appointment with him at the Oval Office? Well, the only explanation that anybody can come up with is that Roosevelt was so warm and friendly and kind that people were tricked into thinking that he stood for them. His very demeanor, though he stayed seated, rose to greet them. And that's how it should be in church. We must embrace warmth. 
if we are to grow together. Now here's number three I want to share with you. Churches that grow together, they're patient with one another. They're patient with one another. I want to share a small three-word phrase with you, and I resent that the Walt Disney Company has stolen, has hijacked this phrase and forever changed it for a generation of people. Here's the phrase, let it go. Don't start singing, please. I beg of you. Let it go. There are things that people will do to us in the body of Christ that hurt our feelings, that cause us to hold a bit of a grudge, that make us somewhat bitter, and we've got to let it go. Maybe you're thinking of somebody who said something hurtful to you. Maybe they intended to be hurtful, okay? I'll give you that. Or maybe they didn't. Maybe their words came out muddled and they didn't intend anything bad from what they said, but you've held on to it to this day. Let it go. We've got to learn as Christians to let some things go. We've got to say, you know what? Maybe that person was not having such a good day. Maybe they were not at their best when I caught them. Or maybe worse, maybe there's something going on in their life. They're really struggling with it. They're really struggling. And I caught the brunt of their frustration. They didn't intend to aim it at me, but it just sort of came out. We've got to learn to give people, start giving people the benefit of the doubt and saying, you know what, I'm just going to let that go. Maybe they didn't intend for it to come out like that. I'm going to be patient with people. We need to remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 4a. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly because what? Love covers a multitude of sins. In a church where love abounds, we will be able to overlook some things, to forgive some things. We've got to be patient with one another. If we're going to grow together, we can't let every little comment affect us and get on our nerves and cause us to get our feelings hurt. We've got to let it wash off our back and keep on moving and expressing love to one another. But though we ought to be patient with one another, here's number four. Churches that grow together ought to also challenge one another. We've got to challenge one another. Just as God loves us the way we are but refuses to leave us here, so we must be challenging one another to deeper levels of devotion. We can't leave people where they are when they come up out of the waters of baptism. There is growth to be experienced and we've got to be helping them along, pulling them along. I think about the image that Paul shares in Titus 2 of older men, mature, wise men in the church training younger men. Of older ladies, mature, wise ladies in the church training younger women. We need our men who have been baptized believers for 50 years to say to our younger men, I remember what it was like to be tested in that way. I remember what that stage of life was like when we were first married, when we were raising the kids. I remember that temptation. Here's, and it may have been imperfect, but here's how I handled it. Here's how I resisted it. Here's how I managed it. Here's how we kept the faith through all those years until this very day. We need our older, wiser, more mature believers to be reaching back and taking the hands of those who are less mature and helping them along. 
And listen, we need the faith of younger people to inspire the faith of some of us who are older, but whose flame has flickered out a little bit, and we've become a little too apathetic and a little too complacent. We need the bold and passionate faith of the young to inspire the old, and we need the steady, rock-solid faith to steady the young and to, to ground it. As I heard recently, faith is not just passed down, it's passed around. We've all got to be blessing one another, challenging one another. And listen, this also involves accountability. Our culture says, mind your own business. Leave me alone. We live in a hyper-individualistic country, culture, not in the church. In the church, it is my business. Because we belong one to another. Because we're part of the same family. Because God has brought us together into the body of Christ. Now, if somebody was trying to saw off your arm or sever your leg, are you just going to let them do it? I'm sorry to be graphic, but this is the Bible's image, not mine, okay? The Bible's image of the church is a body. Now, if, if you think somebody would try to saw off your leg and you would just say to them, well, just make it quick, would you? No, you're going to fight for that limb. You're going to fight for that arm or that leg. You're not going to let it go. It's part of your body. And the same is true with those who we see drifting away. They're going astray. It's clear by the decisions that they're making. It's clear by the way they've pulled back from the body. And we must not let them go without a fight. And they may say, mind your own business but we must say it is my business because we belong together. And I'm not, I love you too much to let the devil drag you away from this body. Being the church involves accountability and it involves challenging one another and loving each other too much to let us get waylaid by Satan and pulled away. The last one that I want to share with you this morning is this. Churches that grow together not only pray for, but they pray with one another. Not just for, but with. And maybe some of us need to start with for. Because we aren't praying for one another. We aren't devoted in our prayer life to lifting each other up before the throne of God. But the for has got to move into with. I think about James in 5.16 when he says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, or as the King James says, uh, availeth much. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is effective. Prayer works. And knowing what we know about prayer, it is baffling that we do not stop more often to pray with each other, to pray together. It's baffling to me. This does not come naturally to me, to stop and to pray. And I don't know why. Um, I don't know if I'm a, a product of you know, my culture growing up, if this was just something that was never modeled for me, or if it's just about my personality. I have to work at this. But it's important that we show each other and the world that we believe that prayer is powerful, that it works. And there's no better way to show that than to stop and to pray with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If they're struggling with something or 
just because we want to thank God for something or if there's a goal that somebody wants to reach, the first thing that we ought to be doing is not dispensing advice or talking about it. We should be praying about it. And this is very challenging to me, a place where I need to grow. Now, in our text this morning, after Paul talks about how we are the body of Christ growing into him who is the head, there is a caveat. There is a catch. In verse 16, we need to notice it. He says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. In other words, this only works when each organ is doing its job. When each unit is fulfilling its purpose. When each part is working properly. You, if you are a baptized believer, are a vital, integral part of this church family. And if you are not doing your part, if you are not doing your job, serving Christ in the way that He's gifted you to serve, then we will never reach our full potential. For us to meet our full potential, every part's got to be working properly. And so we need you. We need you. We need all of us coming together. If this is to be a church that looks up, reaches out, and grows together, it's going to take the dedication of every single member. And so with our eyes fixed upward and our arms outstretched, we grow together in Christ. And my question this morning as we close is, do you want to become a member of the body of Christ? If you do, we want to invite you at this time to come to repent, to confess faith in Jesus, to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can come up victorious out of that water, a new creature, joined together tendon and bone with other faithful believers from here into eternity. It is the tightest, strongest bond that exists on planet Earth. And you can be a part of it. And you can have Jesus as your head. As the one who guides your life, who can be trusted to guide your life from here to the grave and beyond. Or if you're struggling in any, in any way, if any of the message this morning has pricked your heart and convinced you that you need prayers or somebody in your life needs prayers and you need to bring those needs before God and before a church family that loves you very much, then you have an opportunity to do that as well. If there's a spiritual need this morning, don't let it go unspoken. Don't let it go unprayed for. Don't let it go unsatisfied. Come and make it known as we stand and sing.